How wonderful it is, as always, to gather in this place of worship to give praise back to God for the love that we have been bestowed. Would you pray with me? Lord, who are we that you are mindful of us? That you seek us out, that you are waiting in anticipation of the day when we realize that you have been with us all along, that day that we finally return to you. You are our refuge and our strength, our ever-present help in trouble, all trouble. Despite all, any trouble, you are greater, you are able, you are our protector and defender who continuously shows love to us and challenges us again and again. Though some of our prayers today might be, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, you recognize where we are, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see all hurt below the surface, unspoken pain, even when we don't recognize it in ourselves. Even when we feel that things are going well, even when we don't realize how much we need you. We are in constant need of you, and you continually, undeservedly fill us with your transforming love because you see in us a capacity for love and potential to choose and seek you and be drawn close. If we would only look up and see that you are right here among us. You call us to seek you and not give up on our constant search, not to grow lukewarm in our affection for you, for you burn brightly with unfailing love for us. In the midst of suffering, you grant us gold that makes us rich, Clothe us with that, those holy white robes of salvation that mask over and forgive our imperfection. And you give us the medicine to anoint our eyes that we may see you more clearly, see what truly matters, see who has been waiting right there for us with open arms. You have always been standing there at our door, knocking. Continue to push us not to be lukewarm in our faith, not to hesitate in our dedication to you with our heart, soul, and mind, and in the fulfillment of your commandments. Continue to discipline and urge us, your beloved, to be better, and to reveal to us continuously how we can further live our lives as instruments of your peace. Grant us ears to listen, to hear your voice and the sound of your hands hammering against the door that we might finally let you in and dine with you in communion and fellowship. Allow us to be open to receiving the transforming message of your spirit, reaching out to your churches, to this church, urging us to draw closer to you and live out the evidence of our commitment. Transform us, all of us, in our hearing, and shape us as we listen and wait for you. Here we are, ready to worship you and be transformed, and return your love for all you have done for us. With open hearts, it is in your name we pray. Amen.
choir and the musicians make their way to the congregation, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, all the way at the end of your Bibles, chapter 3, be reading verses 13 to the end of the chapter, verse 22. This is the last in a series of small vignettes in the book of Revelation that come in the form of letters to real local churches in cities in what in ancient history is called Asia Minor, it's sort of modern day Turkey. And this is part of a larger body of revelation from a prophet who, by the name of John, has been uh, sequestered, banished, is being held in prison on an island called Patmos. During a time of tribulation among many churches, experiencing the pressure of the earthly government upon their operation, or pressure from within, where the churches in one way or another are starting to show cracks in their fellowship. This comes as a book of worship, as a book of encouragement, as a book of chastisement and challenge, and above all, very good news. The letter that we're going to read today is written to a church in a city called Laodicea. And many of us had our awareness raised to this particular letter a number of years ago when uh, one of our church members, Jim Thompson, made his way back into our fellowship after a long and arduous recovery from a terrifying accident. And as he recalled his experience in the accident, he, he acknowledged to us that he was not alone but instead experienced in a very real way the presence and the sustaining power of God and even more the voice of God speaking to him a word for us. That we are a Laodicean church. And depending on where you want to stop reading the letter, that can come as really hard news or exceedingly good news. And I hope we have the uh, patience and the humility to be able to hear both. Hear these words. To the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you may cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, 
just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. As I said, this is the last in a series of seven letters that were written to seven different churches, and each one of those churches in the book of Revelation has a particular mark or a particular challenge or a particular kind of focus or theme uh, that Jesus is addressing. Instead of having some sort of universal message that's just sort of equally applied over all churches, Jesus has a personal interest in each one of these communities and is speaking into their particularity a word of his universal love, grace, and care. And so the church at Ephesus had begun to backslide, we find. Or the church in Smyrna was contending with an issue of suffering. The church at Pergamum was compromised, and the church at uh, Thyatira was on its last chance. The church in Sardis was dead. And the church in Philadelphia had the open door of opportunity, but perhaps most famously, the one we've probably heard the most about is this last one, the seventh church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. A lukewarm church, does that sound so bad? There's no heresy, no persecution, there's no immorality that's being named, none of the things that are described as great problems, maybe in the other churches that's not plaguing the church at laodicea this is a church though that's marked by mediocrity it has nothing to do with the the quality of the music program or or you know how well proofread the bulletins were anything like that we're talking about spiritual mediocrity and jesus takes this very seriously This message from Jesus to the church in Laodicea is very strong. It is very pointed. And at least one theologian, John Stott, says it this way. We need to brace ourselves to hear what Jesus thinks of this church. Why bother listening to him at all? The letter begins with the credentials of the one who is about to speak. Verse 14 to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write these words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. You know, one of the things I've learned as a pastor over time, particularly in smaller, more rural settings, is that people look to the pastor to be something of a well-credentialed expert in everything. Family law, auto mechanics, medicine, Whatever may go on, they'll often come to their pastor and ask for counsel. And there was a time when I lacked sufficient humility to say, I don't know anything about that. And so I would try and listen and learn and glean everything I could. I hang around in the hospital long enough, I start to recognize some of the names and the the, the processes and the machines and everything else. But by no means should you ever come to me for medical counsel. Why not? Because I have not been exposed to the great body of learning that each doctor and nurse and tech has to learn just to get into the door of a medical job, much less 
all of the continuing education that goes on and on and on. When I go in for medical counsel, I want to see degrees, and I want to see special certifications, and I want to see maybe a textbook with that doctor's name on it. And then I'll know the diagnosis that I'm receiving is one that is soundly delivered through wisdom, through experience, through sheer credibility and authority. And this diagnosis comes from the amen. That is to say, these are the words of the one who not only speaks and delivers God's own words, the one in whom all the promises of God are kept, the one who has never uttered an empty word or issued a hollow threat or an impossible promise. This is the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the one who tells the truth about God and tells us the truth about ourselves. It's the one in whom God is perfectly revealed in the world. That word for truth means something like genuine as opposed to an illusion. This is someone who is not a counterfeit. This is someone who knows reality at its deepest levels. And in the translation that I read today from the revised, New Revised Standard Version, it says he's the ruler of creation. But if you get behind the English translation in that word uh, that's translated ruler of creation is something different. It says he's the beginning of creation. It's the same word that begins. John's Gospel, in the beginning was the word. And that, of course, is an echo to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning when God was creating the heavens and the earth. This is the one who was in the beginning at creation, not the first of a long series of creatures, but instead the archetype through which and by which all things came into being. And not one thing, says John, came into being that was made that wasn't made through him. And so when this one speaks, we don't, have to pivot nervously and try and find a second opinion. This one has delivered the authority and the credentials to help us to trust this word, even though these words are hard to hear. And so then Jesus presents several images, word pictures, to help the Laodicean church understand what it is he's trying to communicate with them. And though, in some ways, it's very specific to Laodicea, I think you'll experience a great deal of contact with Durham. The first that Jesus uses is in the voice of maybe a visitor to the city who's thirsty and needs some water, and so goes to get some water, and it's not good. Now, Laodicea didn't sit alone, but there in the valley, it was part of, maybe we could call it a triangle, actually three large and very prosperous cities. One was Colossae, and we know that from Paul's letter to the Colossians, maybe five or six miles away, as, as we would count it. In Colossae, there were a lot of fresh springs, cool water, uh, where you could access nice, refreshing, cool water. Um, there was also Hierapolis, which was also nearby, a larger city. And one of the things that made Hierapolis so interesting and such a draw was that it had natural hot springs, very hot water. And, um, and Laodicea 
didn't have the gift of either. And to make matters worse, uh, they had suffered about 25 or 30 years before the writing of the letter of Revelation, an earthquake that really leveled the city. So they had to build new aqueducts to bring water from those places in. Now what happens to water as it travels through an aqueduct from the hot water place to Laodicea, or even from the cold water place to Laodicea? It all becomes sort of lukewarm and picks up whatever mineral content was in the aqueduct to begin. To drink this water, people knew the distaste. We all know what it is when we want, on a very hot day, perhaps you've been doing some yard work and you come in and you want a cold glass of water and you know what it feels like to get that punch that brings you back. Or maybe on an excessively chilly day to have that cup of cocoa or tea or coffee or whatever your hot drink of, of, of choice is to have that punch that comes to refresh and awaken your soul from the numbness of the cold. In a failed experiment, some of you might be old enough to remember when McDonald's had that sandwich they called the McDLT. Do you remember that? Keep the hot side hot and the cold side cold. And so it was a great big thing and there was all the cold lettuce and everything on one side and the hot burger on the other. The, the thought was people have grown tired of a sandwich mashed together, sitting on a burner, getting tepid and lukewarm. We can do better because we know how our spirits, our senses, our bodies come alive with the punch of temperature. But Jesus says, no, your church here in Laodicea is lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. And so I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And most of you have been taught that that is a very polite translation. It really means I will throw you up. You're a church that makes me gag. It's a hard word to hear from Jesus. But mediocrity does not suit Jesus, that sort of spiritual mediocrity. Think about in Luke chapter 9, for instance, powerful chapter. There's so much that's going on. Um, Jesus sends out the 12 on mission. And then immediately after that, Jesus feeds a multitude. And immediately after that, Peter declares Jesus is the Messiah. And immediately after that, Jesus declares his own death and talks about being a suffering Messiah. And then, after that, Jesus is transfigured in front of some of his disciples. Exciting, high and heavy, spiritually rich times. And then on the way, there's a man that says, I'd really like to go along with you, but I got some things to take care of at home first. And what does Jesus say? No one who puts a hand on the plow and looks back is fit, is ready for the kingdom of God. Mediocrity. What does it look like in the church in Laodicea? Well, Jesus then sort of pivots to another image. Now he speaks as a merchant. He's a merchant in the city, and he's come to the church knocking on the door to sell them some new wares. You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I have everything, but Jesus does not see it that way. 
This congregation of very prosperous Laodiceans perceived themselves as having everything they need. But Jesus says, you say I'm rich and I've prospered and I, and I need nothing, but you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And those might be the three worst words any Christian or any church could ever say. I or we need Nothing. Any church or any Christian who says, I need nothing, will not cling to Jesus in everything. A church or an individual who says, I need nothing, will not come to Jesus for anything. And yet this was the course their church had set. That was how they lived their life together they were closer says jesus to bankruptcy than they ever could have imagined for themselves and so he comes as a merchant offering to exchange what it is they have for something new buy from me gold that's refined by fire so you might be rich white garments that you may clothe yourselves in your shame and a salve to anoint your eyes when that earthquake I mentioned destroyed the city of Laodicea, the Roman imperial government actually offered a great deal of assistance, part of the empire, to help rebuild. Of course, we know, you know, working with Rome, that would come at its own cost, probably somewhere down the line, kind of like the godfather. Be that as it may, the Laodiceans refused it and rebuilt the city with their own means. This wasn't just a declaration of independence, so to speak, from Rome. It was also a declaration of financial power. We can do this. We don't need to look beyond ourselves. They rebuilt oh, the entire city with their own resources. This was a rich town. And still Jesus says, there's more. In relying on those, you don't see that there is a gold that I bring to you that doesn't perish or spoil or fade, or as Peter says, an incorruptible inheritance kept in heaven for us. Jesus says, buy white garments from me. And in this very stylish town that was known for, among other things, black wool that was very much in demand, a center of trade for textiles and for fashion. He says, trade all of that fancy stuff out for the white robes that I offer. And in the book of Revelation, over and over again, those white robes represent the holiness of God's people, given for free by grace, if we would accept it by faith. And if we would accept the love that he offers by faith to cover the shame of our mistakes, in our nakedness of our sin. And then lastly, he says, I've got a salve for your eyes. Wouldn't you know it? There was a medical school in Laodicea, a very prominent one. We have two, at least within pointing distance. We're one up on them. Do we need anything? That medical school did provide ophthalmic care. I read in one history that there was a very famous ophthalmologist from you know, the first century who graduated from there. I don't know enough about history or ophthalmology to stake a claim. Be that as it may, one of the products they were known to sell was an ointment for the eyes. 
by the salve that I bring so that you might see truly and clearly who you are and who I am and what I have to bring. So you can see the truth about the relationship that I have struck with you. As he says in John's Gospel, apart from me, you can do nothing. And until you can see that, keep reapplying. And so Jesus is echoing an ancient prophetic word here. The same assurance that came to an exiled people dreaming about their return home in Isaiah. Come, anyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Those who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk. Even without money, without price, come, buy from me what you need. It doesn't cost you anything. You have to receive it by faith. Come by these things and you undo the bankruptcy that's at work in your soul. Even if you don't see that you're blind and you're naked, you listen for the call of Jesus who offers us for free what it is that we need. True riches, clean garments, 2020 vision. It's all in him and through him and we buy it from him. And so we cannot say we have no need. We have a tremendous amount of prosperity and means in this congregation and in this town. I'm really excited about this mission project that, that Lynn has sort of corralled for us. As we take on um, the needs of 10, what a modest number, 10 foster children in North Carolina who go without Christmas, who aren't even sure today where they might spend Christmas, with which family, or how they'll be treated, we can ensure that they know that there is an anchor point somewhere in this state that said a prayer for that name on the card, that bought the gift that's going to light them up. It's going to make a difference. But we cannot fall into the trap that lets us believe either on that rather kind of um, puffed up level that I don't need anything because I'm rich and I can buy my way out of it. More humbly, we also believe sometimes that we're not worth the effort that others have. How many times have I talked to some of you, even on your most difficult days, and you say, well, some people have it worse. That may or may not be true, but that doesn't diminish your need. And until you can acknowledge honestly and fully that you have a need in your times of plenty and in your times of want, you can't discover what it is Jesus has to offer. I guess I should say, Lynn, you'll be at the table here at the end, right? Help people understand what it is that mission project's about. But what Jesus has to offer now is something that's happening even now. That's the last image he uses now as something of a visitor who's knocking on the door. So often we've heard this verse, you know, I knock, behold, I knock. This is not a message to the unconverted. This is a message to the church. Even in the middle of this service, can you hear the knock somewhere on the door, on the window, in your own life? The knock of one who keeps on knocking, 
who keeps on calling, begging for a place and a time to be let in so that once again you can experience the intimacy, the communion, the sharing that we celebrate around the Lord's table, for instance, and around every table in one way or another. Can you hear that knock? To this point, Jesus has been speaking kind of collectively, congregationally, to the entire church. But now it becomes a word for all of us together and each one of us individually. I can't do it for Felicia and she can't do it for me. The door of my life has to be opened by me. The door of our life as a church has to be done by us all. And so we tune our ears, our lives, our whole selves with that sense of expectancy that Jesus continues to knock, asking for a deeper and a deeper relationship that we can discover the joy of what it is he offers, riches that don't perish, holiness that covers our sin and eyes to see God, see ourselves, and see the world as truthfully as God does. And when that communion is then renewed within us, we will be transformed. I wish we could hear Mackenzie's prayer again. We did not trade notes. But I thought to myself, man, I have to preach after that. Because that's our goal. That's our prayer. To be drawn into that relationship so deeply, we will never again, out of pride or shame, say, I need nothing. But instead to earnestly desire and change our minds and open the door of our life to experience what only our Lord Jesus can offer. As we respond today, we're going to do so in prayer, opening up some space and time for us to reflect deeply on this and anything else that you have brought to worship today. Jay, if you'd make your way forward. <laughs> 